Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. Today, I'm joined by two guests, one of whom you've met before. Uh, that's Paolo Dodorico, who is a professor of hydrology and the chair of the Department of Environmental Science Policy and Management at the University of California, Berkeley. We're also joined by Wills Jenkins, who's the Hollingsworth Professor of Ethics at the University of Virginia, where he's also chair of the Department of Religious Studies. They're here today to chat about water security and the ways that our values play into its management, with implications for things like indigenous rights, ecosystem health, economies, environmental justice, and so on. This is one of those fascinating topics that inherently spans disciplines and also inspires thinking that's you know kind of very much out of the box. Uh, it's a topic that I was really excited to learn about, and I hope that you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's go to the interview. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here. Okay, great. I thought, you know, as kind of a first question to start beginning to talk about, you know, water security, it might be interesting to delve a little bit into, you know, the collaboration that you two have and as well with your other authors. So, you know, kind of what brought you two together, um, you know, talking about water security? I, I note that you're from uh, different departments at different universities. Uh, how did that collaboration begin? Yeah, no, good question. It's not obvious why um, uh, someone from religious studies would be working with someone from uh, environmental sciences. Um, and so I would say, first of all, credit to the Environmental Resilience Institute at uh, UVA for bringing us together, really. So they have a water features initiative, which was designed to support three broadly interdisciplinary teams that were supposed to do collaborative, integrative inquiry. Um, and those sort of research teams are really hard to initiate without that kind of support and vision from the start. And so I would say, you know, just materially, the, the, the Environmental Resilience Institute brought us together. Um, and second, uh, and Paolo may not fully know this part, but when uh, ERI, the Resilience Institute, was identifying the thematic focus they wanted for each of their three teams, they identified water security as one. And, you know, in the way that, querulous humanities scholars can sometimes do, I raised critical questions about that. I was like, well, you know, hey, water security is just one idea with its own history and it can exclude other ways of valuing water. And I, I mentioned indigenous water sovereignty, um, views in which water is sacred or intrinsically valuable. And, and I, I really intended that as feedback on what was really meant to be science forward interdisciplinary teams. Um, but they eventually came back to me um, and said, you know, more or less, okay, smarty pants, humanities guy, let's see if you can actually make those ideas work um, in a team that is that is co-led with uh, hydrologists. So can, can you really um, take these other ideas of water justice and, and integrate them into um, uh, a, a project that is really focused on quantitative hydrology? And then uh, that's, I just have to add though, that that's, not entirely true because Paolo also already had brought his own real philosophical interest in what we would eventually come to call the rights of waters when when he was asked to co-lead this team um and i just have to say that this project would be actually impossible without Paolo's expertise and his you know philosophical curiosity and, and openness and it's just been a real pleasure to, to be able to think with him on this likewise uh, willis uh, so i need to add uh, that um uh, until a few years ago, I used to be at the University of Virginia myself, uh, and uh, I had some opportunities to interact with this, uh, and uh, I found uh, remarkable his intellectual curiosity, his uh, ability to think out of the box, to think outside of his discipline, 
And so we never had the opportunity to collaborate. And when this opportunity appeared, I thought it was a great uh, way for us to uh, have a, a meaningful collaboration with a, a broader group of scholars from different disciplines, uh, going from the law school, engineering, uh, humanities, uh, and social sciences. So this was a, a, a very unique uh, opportunity. Uh, there is always the tendency to uh, think about uh, water security in terms uh, of uh, science and engineering without thinking about about other aspects related to uh, water justice uh, and general um, way of looking at the water values. And we are missing often a framework to think about the water from a broader perspective. So most of the approaches have been uh, historically narrow, anthropocentric, uh, focused on uh, technological solutions uh, and accounting for the needs uh, of economic activities uh, often uh, forgetting about uh, cultural, spiritual values uh, and the needs of marginalized groups uh, and the associated impacts on uh, uh, water justice. So this group uh, effort was really motivated by the need uh, to explore a broader uh, and pluralist approach. Okay, great. And I think you've largely covered it already. Um, but let's talk just a bit more about the concept of water security in general and, and sort of, you know, define that term and explain what it means. Um, so, you know, it's historically been, I gather from what you're saying, a, you know, a concept that's largely been used in, um, you know, relation to, you know, economic needs or technical needs. But it's, you know, come to mean more than that. And as been expanded even in the work that you're doing right now. Um, so can you just tell us a little bit about that term and kind of what it means, how it's been used and how it's being used now? Yeah, it's one of those terms that is often a, a little bit vague and uh, also hard to define in the sense that it means different things to different uh, groups of scholars. Typically, by definition, uh, is something that is, is a very anthropocentric n notion because it hinges on the idea of looking at water for human needs and looks uh, at water from two different perspectives, water as a resource and uh, water as a, a source of hazard. So in the first case, uh, we will look at water as uh, water uses for uh, agriculture, good drinking, etc. In the other, uh, and when we think about water for uh, uh, as a source of hazard, we think about flooding, landsliding, etc. And so water security, sometimes this term is used to address ways to control water to address both types of needs. And at the same time, there is also the other aspect is what type of property of water are we looking at? Water quantity or water quality? Water quantity would be, is there enough water to meet certain sets of needs? And water quality is whether the water is good enough for drinking water, if there is a danger for waterborne disease and the problems of sanitation, etc. So then there is the aspect and the definition of water security to whom is uh, if we, even if we look at the quantity and we look at uh, um, water uses, uh, then is uh, water used for uh, drinking and sanitation or water used for agriculture? So when you talk to someone uh, even uh, on uh, a bus ride and you have a conversation about water, people tend to put water often even in, with a focus on fresh water, everything in the same uh, box. But there are big differences between the drinking water, which is just a small fraction of the water we use as a society, and the water used for agriculture. 
And so we tend to associate water security to drinking water, while uh, if we look at uh, water security from the point of view of food security, it would, it would involve much more water and it would go through water uses for agriculture. So you see that, that this already uh, shows that uh, uh, there are different questions, uh, issues related to the notion of uh, water security. There are some related uh, concepts uh, uh, that intersect uh, with uh, human rights, uh, equity and access to water, uh, long-term reliable access to water to face increasing variability associated from climate change, and then uh, the notion of uh, water sustainability, which by itself would uh, require some uh, definition. And then uh, there are other aspects related to uh, the uh, scales. What scale are we talking about water security? At the local scale, at the global scale, uh, to meet the local needs or to meet uh, the uh, needs of the whole humanity, which is what uh, we try to uh, address in this study. Then uh, what we have tried to do in the studies was uh, to uh, present a non-anthropocentric perspective and uh, to talk about water not only for humans and not only for commercial needs. So the limitation of uh, this notion of water security is often that it's vague. It's not clear what aspect of water uh, we are looking at. So it's always important to specify and to define the context in which uh, this notion is used. I also wonder sometimes why we want to define or why scholars have been trying to define water security. Often has been uh, to raise conditions of scarcity, to justify the uh, case for uh, some technological fixes, uh, to advocate for new infrastructure by recognizing the existence of scarcity, to stress that it's important to privatize water, commodify water, with the old argument that uh, if people don't pay for water, water will go, will go wasted, which has been clearly challenged by many scholars uh, in the field. And often uh, we, this leads to the uh, approaches to water uh, management that are uh, based on efficiency, productivity, and they don't look at the impact on rural livelihoods, marginalized communities, the environment, uh, cultural and spiritual values. And so this is really what motivated our study to go beyond this reductionist approach to uh, water uh, security and water uh, research. Okay, and let's talk just a little bit more about what you just mentioned there, you know, the concept of reductionism and how it can kind of, you know, creep into the management of water and make it more difficult than it otherwise would be. I'll leave that open to either one of you who'd like to take it up. So we were really fortunate to be able to bring into our research team at the start, Jeremy Schmidt, who's a geographer from the University of Durham, whose research focuses on, on just that question on, and on how different political and cultural ideas of water inform major management frames. Uh, his key book here is called Water, Abundance, Scarcity, and Security in the Age of Humanity. And it focuses on uh, how water became scarce in the conceptual sense. Like, how do people come to think about water as a scarce resource? And as Paolo's already suggested, um, Jeremy's research shows how it often justified infrastructure programs or, or technological or market interventions. And he's really asking, in a, in a cultural sense, where did that idea of scarcity come from and what kind of governance programs has it sustained? And his work basically shows that, that water security concepts have historically functioned to uh, authorize, you know, a narrow range of valuing water and certain institutions for managing it, generally some combination of you know, economic efficiency plus utility for human needs. So that over time, water security becomes a shorthand uh, for thinking about how do you balance economic value versus universal human rights to water. Uh, and so because Jeremy has been interested in how other ways of valuing water 
or relating to it have been pushed aside from those historical processes, have been marginalized from how we think about water security. He was right away intrigued by the direction of the project that, that Paolo and I were beginning to form. And, and he was really crucially helpful in orienting our approach and, and articulating it, its significance for these global conversations about water governance. And I, I hope you won't mind, and feel free to just say no if this isn't a good question. But I'm just curious, is part of the tendency to look at water as a scarce resource, do you think that stems from, you know, coming from uh, a society with an economic system that's largely, you know, capitalistic, looks at supply and demand? Is it an outgrowth of that? Or uh, is that something you would rather not speculate on? But to some extent, that's the case. Um, because uh, the recognition of limits often and of the limitations in the availability of resources often justifies uh, uh, creating some property rights on that resource, uh, fencing the land, etc. So fencing water in a way and uh, uh, converting that into a commodity. Let's talk about you know some of the other ways of, of valuing water. Um, you know we, we've talked a, a little bit already about you know indigenous peoples' water rights, the cultural value of water, um, the spiritual value of water. So um, can you just give us a little bit of an introduction you know to those possibly different ways of looking at you know water and valuing it? Sure. Yeah. So really central among those excluded ways of valuing water have historically been indigenous relations, which are especially disadvantaged by mainstream ways of imagining water security, by that narrower range of values. Uh, so, and, you know, of course, indigenous ways of valuing water are not single, very diverse, many peoples, many cultures, but they may include identity constituting practices with water, like, for example, uh, uh, ceremonial interactions with a particular salmon run. Or they may recognize a waterway as a being with its own rights and responsibilities. And those things are just they have historically been entirely outside the kind of thing that um, uh, a water security framework could include. Here, we were really fortunate to have Ryan Emanuel on our team. Uh, so Ryan is an environmental scientist uh, now at Duke, who's also a member of the Lumbee tribe of, of North Carolina. And Ryan has worked on what water needs from a Lumbee perspective, which may include something like what could be called, you know, spiritual relationships with particular waters or sacred relationships or cultural relationships, right? Even the vocabulary is kind of difficult. But so um, Ryan is the one who pointed out to our team the hydrological implications of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which specifically mentions cultural values for water and which is often invoked by Indigenous peoples to defend their way of relating with water their values for interacting with water or their sovereignty over water relations, all of which we might consider water security in their terms. So when we exclude those kinds of values because, you know, we don't have the conceptual tools to include them, that can be, that exclusion can be unjust in itself because it's not recognizing entire ways of understanding water and what water security could mean, including ways that might be central to the identity of particular political communities, which is just to say that you know, security and justice around water includes these aspects of recognition. And so something that we wanted our, our conceptual tool to do is to be able to begin to, to move in that direction. And I'll just note, you, know, you can make a similar point, maybe with less political intensity for other conceptions of water as sacred. You know, There are a number of rivers around the world that are considered sacred to particular religious communities. What well, could a water security concept begin 
to reflect that. And of course, there are many secular philosophical accounts that support the idea that rivers or, or waterways have intrinsic value. Can water security concepts incorporate that? Okay, so it sounds like the challenge and you know goal of an article like this one then is to take you know the multiple different ways that water has traditionally been valued, be that you know commercial or cultural and so on, um, and you know kind of bridge them, if you'll forgive the pun, uh, to put together a framework that makes sense of all of them together. Yeah, that's right. You know, so we wanted to explore if it would be possible to incorporate some of that diversity in water evaluation, of course, without being uh, complete, but to do so in a way that, that still permits comparison, sort of quantitative hydrological comparison across different ways of valuing. So this is a, this is a pluralist approach that is to say it's one that works with multiple kinds of values without trying to reduce them into one or conflate some into others. And we were asking, could we create quantitative hydrological proxies for these values such that they can be compared and, and aggregated? And, and I want to emphasize, you know, a, a primary purpose here is uh, heuristic. We're trying to model a way of diversifying water governance. We're not offering, a, you know, a solution to a, a planetary challenge in itself or one pathway to water security, but we're showing what water security looks like when it's framed as the relation among several kinds of values rather than the optimization of one value. Okay, and it sounds like you're handling my segues for me. Um, let's let's talk about some of the you know the ways of valuing water, um, and we can take them one by one, or if it makes more sense to chat about them all at once, that's fine too. But uh, you know, the article mentions the rights of water, rights to water, and commercial water rights. We can take those one by one or all at once, whichever way you think would be the best way to address them. But let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the framework itself. So we talk about plurality of values of water. So at some point, there is the need to give some examples of different sets of values that play a role in some of these uh, decisions uh, on uh, and water resources. So we uh, identified these uh, uh, associative values with different types of rights. The right to water is the water component of the right to food, to produce food. There is, we need water, and there is a right to food re recognized also by the United Nations. And so this uh, right to water is to address questions related to food security. Then, uh, at the same time, uh, they uh, still, in a very anthropocentric perspective, uh, in many regions of the world, there are some water rights, commercial water rights. And with this, we want to uh, look at uh, all these uh, water uses, uh, whose main goal is uh, to address uh, needs related to generational profit and uh, the needs of uh, businesses and profit generation. So these uh, uses uh, uh, in conditions of water scarcity typically aim for uh, an efficient uh, uh, use of water. And so we already referred to that before. So the uh, economic efficiency sometimes comes at the cost of uh, disregarding other sets of values that are more of a spiritual, cultural, and environmental uh, nature. And then, uh, um, because of that, often there has been uh, the tendency to recognize property rights commodify water, even create markets uh, or financial instruments uh, uh, on uh, uh, water. And this is uh, the second uh, group. Then there is uh, the third one is uh, the uh, rights of waters. Perhaps this is uh, something um, uh, goes back to what uh, Willis was uh, referring to in terms uh, of uh, uh, rights that are uh, nested also in the uh, um, uh, traditions of uh, indigenous groups around the world. Yeah, so maybe I'll just add there. Um, so let me first say, 
we're using rights of waters as a as a shorthand, obviously, and it's trying to encompass the ecocentric commitments that can be included in relational values, sacred values, intrinsic values uh, that may be held for specific rivers or lakes or any kind of water related geographic feature. Um, it's you know, it's still, uh, it's encompassing a lot of different kinds of values in itself. And so you can kind of think of it as a, as a category of valuing. Um, and even though we know it's not fully representative, we think that this idea, rights of waters or this concept helps incorporate a, somewhat of that fuller range of, of cultural and political water values that have historically been excluded from water security. So that's, that's one thing that this paper is trying to do. And then we're also putting that into comparative relation with rights to water. And I just want to say, obviously, so so much of Paolo's research has um, really helped us understand what a human right to water actually entails. Um, and uh, I, I guess Paolo should just talk more about that. But it's, that's one thing that I think uh, so fantastic about this paper is it's using this you know, this somewhat uh, innovative idea, this proxy rights of waters, and then putting it into conversation with this really robust research around rights to water and, um, and then how, what implications that has for how we understand commercial water rights. And I think uh, uh, they are part of the work here. In, in this case, it was uh, uh, trying to, to see what are also the trade-offs between yeah. uh, or among these uh, three different sets of uh, rights and associated values. Okay, and this is the the stage in the interview, unless um, there's other things we'd like to cover in the meantime, uh, where I I try to uh, bully my guests into into applying this, you know, kind of in an example format. So, you know, what would this look like? It can be, you know, completely imagined. It does not need to, you know, be any particular watershed or body of water. Um, you know, how would this type of thinking be applied in, if not a concrete example, at least a made up concrete example? I can start with the, an example of. Uh, a, a narrow approach to water management and I would refer to the way access to water has been taken away from indigenous communities to meet some commercial water needs mostly for economic development and there is a, there are examples very close to me here in California in which uh, the native uh, American communities have been expropriated from headwaters of uh, watersheds uh, in the uh, Sierra to allow for the development of hydropower this was in the early, in the mid uh, 1900s. So recent work, also by a scholar at UC Davis, Middleton, she pointed out how they, uh, this uh, uh, land has been uh, uh, taken away completely disregard of the uh, rights of uh, Native American communities. And uh, uh, then uh, um, often even invoking eminent domain argument for uh, public utility. And then uh, now that the land is taken, uh, is taken away from the power uh, utilities companies, partly because of, of uh, bankruptcy, uh, of the uh, main concern is, of the society has been to give the land back to the environment, to create uh, like uh, reserves, and not to give it back to uh, the Native American uh, communities. Again, this uh, um, shows how the concerns often don't account for the spiritual, cultural values which uh, also in some cases uh, can be effectively combined with uh, an effective uh, uh, environmental management. Again, uh, this is a, a, a pluralistic approach that recognizes the plurality of water values would allow for a more holistic uh, um, 
uh, understanding of water management. And I even don't like the term uh, water management because it's very, again, anthropocentric. Probably much better would be uh, uh, to talk about uh, water stewardship. And uh, so what uh, we have experienced uh, in, in the past is the rise and failure of Western models of water management centered on large scale infrastructure, water harnessing, establishment of property rights, economic efficiency paradigms, often forgetting about traditional methods of land and water stewardship and the plurality of values that motivate such, stu uh, such a stewardship. This has led to the disruption of uh, uh, the environment, again, because of the anthropocentric perspectives of water needs. And we uh, have left uh, rivers go dry, uh, sediment being trapped in reservoirs, and, which, uh, and disrupting basically the way uh, water uh, contributes to shaping the landscape. And uh, we have also uh, dismantled the water governance institutions and uh, uh, the ethics of uh, uh, water stewardship. So our framework uh, in this paper tries to explore the extent to which water uh, can be uh, taken without uh, depriving its uh, uh, from nature, without depriving uh, its function, without uh, depriving, uh, eliminating completely environmental flows, when meeting also the human rights to food, which is the main form of human appropriation of water resources, and considering also the commercial water needs to some extent, uh, we show that uh, answers cannot be found only at the local scales and often uh, water uses are global because water, uh, the food system is globalized. A community can manage water resources and meet its cultural, spiritual, economic needs as well as the needs of the environment, but uh, do, can do that by relying on food imports and unsustainable water use uh, uh, somewhere else uh, around the world. So this uh, externalization and displacement of water uh, impacts and water costs, uh, which are uh, uh, costs both for society and for the environment somewhere else around the world, uh, can be problematic. And so this uh, means that uh, I think one of the main goals here was to stress how they, uh, it's complicated to uh, look at this problem, considering both uh, these global constraints and at the same time, local needs of environment uh, and society, culture, culture, spiritual values often refer to the needs of uh, local communities, but this needs to be put also in a global context. And so this is what our framework uh, uh, tried to do, is to account for these global constraints on the rights to water, so on food security, while recognizing the local environmental and economic impacts. Um, I'm going to add something, and um, you, this may or this may or may not fit with what you want to do. But uh, I'll just say that. Um, so, as a scholar of ethics, one thing that's been that I especially appreciated about the work that went into creating this framework um, was how it stimulates deliberation on what values mean hydrologically. And so, all, everything we've said so far is talking about how. Um, introducing maybe underrepresented or, or marginalized values could add something to, uh, let us say, basically a science-based governance concept. But here I want to say something to, to the other side, and, and that is I really appreciate the way that these, this kind of um, uh, collaboration opens possibilities for, uh, I guess I would say, broad public reflection on what um, different kinds of values mean when you try to um, uh, recognize them in a particular watershed. 
Um, and, and, you know, insofar as a, I identify philosophically as a pragmatist, which means, you know, I think that um, deliberative communities can improve their understanding over time by reasoning through challenges. And um, insofar as we say that our publics are really challenged by uh, our various kinds of resilience disturbances, uh, then what we're saying is we need to help make uh, deliberative communities more competent. And this is the kind of work that can do that. They can say, okay, these are the values we say that we hold. Now in these conditions, let's see what they, how they operate. Um, now, now what do you think about those values and what do you think about what their practical meaning is? Yeah, that strikes me as incredibly valuable and in a, in a very useful way of, um, you know, in, in part reforming the thinking around these types of issues as well. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what's next. Um, you know, what's next for this uh, collaboration? What's next for implementing the, this type of thinking? You know, how do we get you know uh, deliberative bodies to begin to think this way? Well, one thing we uh, uh, one thing that is really needed is now is a more a more. Uh, local and less global approach so if we i just said that it's important to remind ourselves about the existence of these global constraints but at some point we need to relax those and to see what happens uh, more at a local scale and so there is a, re a very rich literature uh, in hydrology and water resources uh, on water management and again if we want to go from management to stewardship we can uh, revisit some of these approaches uh, to include again this uh, pluralistic uh, this plurality of values that are not only again based on quantitative approaches to meet some commercial needs, but that account for different sets of values. Great, and that's certainly something that you know. I I hope that we uh, hear more about soon, and um, I hope that you know you'll you'll come back and, and tell us about it a little bit in the future. Anyway, I, I think that's a great note on which to leave the conversation. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thank you, James. It was a pleasure. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.